Welcome, everyone, to the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's Last Week in Texas podcast. I'm your host, Wayne Stacy, the Executive Director for BCLT. And once again, we have Texas expert and all-around civil procedure expert, Michael Smith, with us. Mike, thank you for joining us again. Thank you for having me, Wayne. Well, Michael, tell us uh, what happened in Texas last week. Well, we had some interesting cases uh, come out of several districts in Texas. Let me start with the Eastern District. Uh, Judge Gilstrap granted a motion to dismiss for unpatentable subject matter. And uh, that's a relatively unusual uh, order uh, in that the judges usually uh, find that you haven't met the burden on that. But in this case, the court found that the Alice first step was met, that the patent was directed to an abstract concept. But when he got to the second one, he said there's a clear absence of factual allegations uh, to support the eligibility of the patents in suit. So he said, I'm going to grant the motion uh, and dismiss the case because there just aren't factual allegations uh, to get you over the finish line and get you in front of a jury on this. But because he said it wasn't that the defendant met their burden to show that uh, it was unpatentable subject matter. It was more of a 12B6 Twombly issue of you just haven't pleaded it. He said, I'm going to dismiss it, but dismiss without prejudice, which is a little bit of an unusual um uh, resolution, but at least the defendant got their dismissal. So it seems like the thing everybody should take away from this is not to get excited that 101 is now alive and flourishing in the, the Eastern District, but that procedures matter. You need to get your pleadings done correctly. You need to plead the correct facts. And if you don't, you're going to get at least one chance to try to correct your pleadings. Right. And I actually had that in a case earlier this week where a part, the judge said, okay, I'm, I think the defendant, uh, wins on this. And in terms of the plaintiff and says, okay, do you want to just take the order and take it up on appeal or do you want to try to replead? And they chose to replead. Well, in this case, he didn't let them replead, but he did at least give them a dismissal without prejudice. So you're right. Uh, procedure matters. Facts matter. You need to have facts in your complaint. You need to make sure you've got what the court needs in order to give you the ruling that you need. That's a theme we're seeing in the last few weeks. So, so Michael, why here dismiss um, rather than, I guess, encourage them to replete? Well, I thought that was kind of unusual because I have seen before, it, it's pretty common when you get a defendant that shows that they're entitled to a 12B6 dismissal, a plaintiff gets an opportunity to replete. And I guess that is what is actually happening here. It's a dismissal, but it's without prejudice. So they could simply file a new suit and replete. The, the only procedural distinction is because it's already been dismissed once, uh, the plaintiff isn't going to be able to dismiss it again. The next time they assert it, uh, a dismissal at that stage would be a dismissal on the merits. Um, I'm not real sure why he didn't say they can plead. It may have been that in the briefing, it became clear that these were all the facts that they had. So the court essentially said, I, I, I know that these are all the facts there are, so you can't get any further on this. That's something that we don't know without really studying the briefing on it. But it's interesting that you might be able to try to steer a dismissal into that uh, uh, middle ground where possibly you could live to fight again. Well, what else do we learn from the Eastern District? 
Well, we had a motion for new trial denied in Marshall, and that may not seem significant, but I think people will be interested because that was in a patent case that was tried several months ago in Marshall in front of Judge Gilstrap. And the Marshall jury in that case found that the claims were not infringed, and it also found that the claims were invalid. That's not the rarest verdict in the world in Marshall. I I was in a case in April where we got the same verdict. So the plaintiff files a motion for new trial and uh, gives the court all the reasons that it can for why it needs to set aside the jury verdict and give them another chance. And and, uh, the judge says, no, you're claiming errors in claim construction. I'm standing by the claim construction. I'm standing by the language in the charge. uh, And he denied the motion for new trial. So that defense verdict stands. And we'll see if uh, Ultravision wants to take it up on appeal. We also saw a really good example of parties working together, keeping things off the court's dockets on an agreed bill of costs. That's, that's correct. In the, uh, uh, PMC case that was, that where again, the defendant got an order, um, uh, resolving the case in their favor, they came back to the court with an agreed bill of costs. And normally I wouldn't be talking about all these things we can learn from an agreed uh, filing, but here we really can because first of all, the parties reached agreement as to the court costs, which really shouldn't be difficult because the rules are pretty clear on what's in and what's out. And in that case, the losing plaintiff agreed to the amount of $375,000 in court costs, which usually reflects some agreements on, well, we'll include this and, and we'll agree not to include that. It also included a provision that stayed payment of the costs until 30 days after the judgment is final and all appeals have been exhausted. Now, a lot of times you see people fighting over that. A a successful party will want their court costs right then. And if you go to the court, this seems to be kind of more of what the normal uh, resolution is. You're going to get a stay of of paying the court costs until after the appeals resolved. Here, the parties. Um, made the right decision, realized what the ruling was going to be, realized what the right outcome was, and presented the court with an agreed bill of costs with agreed stay language. Well, and this is, I mean, it's a really good lesson because tempers are still high at, at this point, and I can see clients pushing to get their their pound of flesh right then, uh, but the court's not typically going to want to be involved in that. Right. I, I was glad to see this. I was in a case uh, not too long ago where the parties did fight over this, and it took them quite a while to eventually realize that uh, there is a pretty well uh, accepted resolution here. Uh, we also had a couple interesting cases out of the Northern District this week, and one of them we actually don't have an opinion on. Uh, uh, Chief Judge Barbara Lynn granted, um, or what we saw was a final judgment of non-infringement in a case. But that wasn't the opinion, so I went to look at the opinion, and there isn't an opinion. Uh, it's a sealed memorandum opinion in order, which apparently the parties are looking at to make sure that uh, business confidential information is redacted. So we expect to see an order on that soon. But when you look at the docket entry there, you find out something inter- else that's interesting. You find out that the summary judgment was on non-infringement. You also find out that uh, Chief Judge Lynn excluded the plaintiff's damages expert. Well, that's always an order that I'm interested in is whether a judge rules in or rules out damage opinions. So that's one where I've, I've kind of put a note in my uh, 
stack to go back and look for that order when it comes out because we'll have a summary judgment of non-infringement and an order excluding a plaintiff's damages expert, presumably on the eve of trial. So that should be an interesting opinion when it comes out. That's a that's a tough dual loss on non-infringement and uh, your damages expert at the same time. It uh, makes for yeah. a tricky appeal. Yeah, I had one of those earlier this year, too. It is not fun. Um, the other interesting case we had come out of the Northern District this week was from Judge Jane Boyle. She denied a motion for contempt sanctions. Now, listeners may recall a few weeks ago, we talked about Judge uh, Boyle granting a uh, injunction preventing a company from using the word bazoo for some reason in connection with restaurant services and food products in Dallas. Well, what happens here is the plaintiff goes back to the court and asks to hold the defendants in contempt, saying that the the defendants violated the injunction because they kept using the term on social media and on physical equipment and signs. And when the parties get in front of the court, they agree that the defendants in full compliance as of the hearing, but the defendant says it took a little while to get all the required changes made. And we weren't, you were correct. We weren't able to get all of them done immediately following issuance of the injunction, but we're working as hard as we could to get that done. And Judge Boyle looked at the facts there, said, well, I'm, I'm going to hold they're not in contempt and that sanctions are not appropriate. So should that motion have been brought? I guess it depends on the facts. It depends on the judge. But in this case, the party was only looking for their fees for filing the motion for sanctions and for contempt. So there's not really harm to your client. So the thing I would be doing in that situation is deciding, is it really worth the expense I'm putting on my client filing the motion, given what I'm likely to get out of the court? Or or maybe am I doing this to uh, put pressure on the defendant to go ahead and get in compliance quicker. So we don't know what the underlying facts were here, but I think this is a motion that you could have gone either way on whether to file it. And I could see judges going either way on whether to grant it. Well, since this is a preliminary injunction case, you know, it's possible these parties are going to be in front of this same judge for a year, two years into the future. So this is kind of one of those motions that, could cement the reputation of the parties in the court's mind. Exactly. Exactly. You, you, um, you, you need to think about the impression you're making with the court. Are you, are you overreaching? Are you going too far? And when I was reading this, this reminded me of the story that a lawyer told at an Eastern district bar event. He mentioned at one time he needed to get sworn into the Eastern district and he called up the then chief judge, uh, the late, uh, Robert Parker and and it turned out they were both going to be in Austin in a few days. So he said, well, Judge, can I can I meet you for let's go to Texas Chili Parlor for lunch and then you can swear me in. Judge said, OK, yeah, that sounds fine. So they go have lunch. They're getting up. They're leaving. And the lawyer reminds Judge Parker, well, Judge, you haven't sworn me into the Eastern District yet. And Judge Parker says, all right, you're right. Let me do that. OK, raise your right hand. I do solemnly swear that I will never file a motion for contempt sanctions. The lawyer says, yes. He says, OK, that's it. You're in. I always remembered that because it's a, it's a kind of a good reminder that judges don't like these motions. So don't put one in front of them unless you really need to. So again, I'm not saying it was a good idea or a bad idea in this case, but it's something that you really need to be careful on, um, uh, before you go after somebody for contempt or for sanctions. Well, when we moved to the, the Western district, one of the, the cases that caught my eye is, uh, you know, just seems 
fairly simple on its on its face, but we don't see a lot of them. And it's a great procedural reminder, but it's about counterclaims and the first to file rule. Right. Uh, Judge Albright had the situation where a defendant wants to assert counterclaims and the plaintiff says, no, you, you can't assert those here because you've already asserted those counterclaims in another case. And that's where we find out there is a prior filed case pending in New York where a court it, under the first to file rule, that court is the first to file. And Judge Albright looks at the arguments on claim splitting and he looks at the arguments on the first to file rule and he grants it under the first to file rule saying the court in New York is the first to file. It will decide whether to go forward. It will decide whether to dismiss the case and let me go forward as the second file court. But you can't bring those claims here until the first file court has decided that he's he or she is not going to. Uh, so it, it is a useful uh, observation on that. And it kind of reminds people that that uh, in the same way that a few weeks ago, we saw Judge Rosenthal in the Southern District of Texas deferred decisions to Judge Albright as the first to file court. Here, Judge Albright is deferring decisions to the first to file court uh, in um, New York, as he did in California uh, last week, I think we talked about. Well, Judge Albright also issued a ruling on early discovery, and he he denied early discovery in that case. What what lessons can we can we take away about the court's leanings on early discovery? Well, in in that case, you've got cases that are going in different. I know I know a little bit about the litigation there. There are cases going on in different courts. There are a number of cases in his court, but there are third parties that get on the line when he has hearings because. They have related cases in other courts. And apparently there was an issue where someone was willing to do discovery to determine who the right parties were, probably who are the right corporate entities for a defendant. Although this is just a, a docket entry, so we don't have very good information. There's not a motion. Uh, there's just a docket entry, so we don't know exactly what's happening. But Judge Albright decided, no, we're not going to do early discovery at this point in this case. But I've had cases with him where he did allow early discovery. So it's, it's on a issue by issue basis. It's something where you, you call the court, you ask to get uh, on the line with the judge. They set up a call for you. In fact, I had one of these yesterday morning in another case with Judge Albright. He gets everybody on the, on the line and you tell him, well, judge, here's what we want. We want to do early discovery on this, or I've got a pending motion to dismiss on this. And I want to do discovery on that. And sometimes he says yes. And sometimes he says no. So here, uh, for whatever reason, he said, no, uh, that discovery is not appropriate at this time. Let's get a little further down the road, but it, but it does indicate something that he told his advisory committee several weeks ago. If you have an issue that you need him to look at, call Chambers and set up a time and he'll set up a hearing usually on three or four days notice. Although I've had it as soon as we got an email one afternoon saying judge has got some time in the morning if y'all want to put this in front of him. So let the court know here's what we need and then he can give you a thumbs up or thumbs down uh, early on. Well, one other I think ruling that seems striking to me is a section 285 from, from Judge Albright, which, you know, denying attorney's fees by itself is not that, that unusual, but he pointed to a fact that struck me and that was that the motions to dismiss were joint. Right. Um, everyone that I talked to, 
every time we get into a case talking about Judge uh, Albright, people always want to know what's his attitude on 285? Has he granted motions? Does he deny motions? What's he looking for on that? And this was a case where there, there were a number of cases. There were joint motions to dismiss filed. And the defendants then went in and said, okay, well, this, we want fees under 285. And he said, this is not an exceptional standard. Now, it's not a detailed order, but the reasons that it gives is the, the motions to dismiss were joint. This wasn't a situation where the defendants had to go ask the court to make the case go away. The plaintiff agreed that the case should go away. And he said there was a lack of bad faith filing. Now, reading between the lines here, this reminds me of something that I tell people uh, about other courts on this. There's a saying from a Longview lawyer um, that I heard early in my career. They said, my cases don't start out frivolous. They just end up that way. A lot of times a plaintiff will file a case believing they have a good case, believing they have the right facts. And as a defendant, I'm happy to tell them, well, you weren't aware of this and you weren't aware of that. And we exchange documents. And more often than people think, the plaintiff will say, okay, okay, you're right. We're, we're missing this element here. If the plaintiff doesn't say that and they go forward and they try to extract something out of a case beyond that point, then you start running into 285 issues. Then you run into bad faith. But where a plaintiff agrees, okay, uh, okay, now I realize I don't have what I've got to have. I'm going to dismiss the case. If the plaintiff voluntarily dismisses the case, I think you see Judge Albright lining up with other judges that say, well, then that's not bad faith. That's an indicator that the plaintiff walked away when it became clear that there wasn't a case to assert. So from the plaintiff's point of view, I would look at this and view it as something of a safe harbor. As long as I get out when it becomes apparent that I need to not go forward with the case because I haven't got a good faith basis, I'll probably be okay. But the flip side of that uh, from the from the defendant's perspective is I can tell a plaintiff, if you make me go to the court to make your case go away, then you're going to be out of uh, Judge Albright's safe harbor, more or less. So I think this is a useful data point for me to lean on a plaintiff and for a plaintiff to be able to lean or a plaintiff's counsel to be able to lean on their client and say, OK, time for us to get out. Well, hopefully it encourages the parties to talk earlier on to evaluate the case and make a decision rather than defendants holding all their cards and then filing surprise motions uh, later in the process. Oh, I, I absolutely. It's, it's, that's a very expensive game. And, uh, it, it, I, 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 there, there, I work, I've worked with some lawyers that are really good at defending cases more, uh, uh, less expensively. And that's one thing that they do, I've noticed, is they talk to the plaintiff a lot. They exchange information. They're, they're kind of an open book on the issues the plaintiff has in the hopes that the plaintiff will be reasonable. And if they accept your representation that these facts mean that you don't have a case, that they'll like let the case go away. So the, the last decision for this week is, is one of those, those great decisions. A uh, lawyer reads the first paragraph or the, the docket entry, and you're a big winner. Uh, when you get to the end of it, you realize the other shoe's about to drop. And that's, uh, <laughs> yeah. th- this is yeah. one when you got to the end of it, you knew that bad things were going to happen to you, even though you won the motion. Yeah, th- this one was, uh, I, I don't know. I really am looking forward to seeing the motion for attorney's fees on he- here, because what actually happened was this. The uh, plaintiff files suit. The court dockets the defendant's answer date, but the court dockets it wrong. 
they docket it as 90 days instead of 21 days under the mistaken impression that because it's a foreign defendant, it's automatically 90 days. The defense lawyer looks at the docket and says, oh, I don't have to worry about this until October the 15th. So since I don't have to worry about this, I'll wait for a couple of months before I contact the plaintiff and talk about it. So a couple of weeks before the deadline, they call the plaintiff about it and they find out that the plaintiff has already taken a default because the deadline was two months earlier. So the court says, okay, this wasn't an intentional default. This wasn't bad faith. I'm going to set it aside. It it was based on a reasonable mistake. It was reasonable. He says something about the defense lawyer acted like a defense lawyer, and he waited until two weeks before the deadline to do anything. But that wasn't reasonable because that wasn't the right date. So uh, that's when you find out in the order that the what the defendant did was rely on what the what the court did and um, I, I don't think under uh, FCC regulations I can quote the line from Animal House, but uh, the court, the uh, lawyer screwed up. He trusted the court, uh, which is what makes this kind of funny because it's not me. But but again, don't rely on the date the court puts down. Calculate it yourself and make sure you you respond when you need to. But if you make a reasonable mistake, the court's going to set aside the default. He just may not be happy that you were not exercising appropriate diligence in the case. Well, and then the the invitation for the attorney's fees motion is is funny here. Uh, but at the end of the day, you know, you're going to spend as much money filing the, the motion as you did putting the default together. So uh, it'll be an empty victory for everyone, but a, a pretty good hand slapping. Yeah, yeah, it, it it does remind us you can't rely on what's on the court's docket or, or it, substantively you might get away with it, but you might it, it still might not work out well. But it, it, I thought it was an entertaining, uh, entertaining case. Well, it's not the, the first lawyer to to rely on an incorrect entry on the docket uh, or pacer. And, you know, th- this one worked out well. It hasn't always worked out well for people when they get to appellate issues and they miss dates. So it correct itself. Uh, you're, I'm, I'm thinking of the same cases you're thinking of where something goes up on appeal and someone was relying on a date on a court docket and it had a dispositive effect on their appeal or on their defense. Uh, so we kind of have to do our job, uh, even if the clerk's office doesn't do theirs. Well, Michael, once again, uh, thank you so much. Uh, an interesting week and we'll talk to you next week. Okay. Talk to you next week. Have a good weekend.